the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. going right here right now this is new generation declassified and you're listening to it all new new generation declassified here exclusively on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire if you didn't know by now my name is chad and every single week we go back in time we take that journey back to the glory days back to the mid 90s back to the world wrestling federation's new generation era an era we all feel is very near and dear to our hearts as we've gone on this journey together for a very long time, uh, as we've chronicled moments, matches, people, personalities, teams, events, pay-per-views, television shows, products, commercials, action figures, magazines, the whole nine yards and everywhere in between this new generation declassified every single week, uh, hopefully introducing you to uh, an era that is bygone and an era that Maybe you didn't really watch at the time. Maybe you tapped out. Maybe you weren't born yet. Maybe you're just going back and uh, becoming a wrestling historian. But whatever it is, the new generation is uh, alive and well, especially on the airwaves here of uh, New Generation Declassified. I want to take a minute and thank my uh, tag team partner from the TMPT Empire, Mr. JP, John Paz, for joining me last week uh, in what I can describe as possibly my favorite episode we've done so far. Um, it was an easy, natural conversation between two people who've known each other for 20 years and not to give a, uh, a podcasting, uh, tutorial, but sometimes, uh, rapport goes a long way. And if there's anything I can do very easily, it's talk wrestling with John, especially during that era, since it's something that, um, you know, we both grew up <laughs> watching at the same time, same age and talking about and uh, learning about as we've gone along the way here on this, uh, wrestling journey for so many years now, uh, but trying to think about where I want to take it next in terms of episodes and people who I'm going to have on to talk about certain topics. Uh, I have a few that I'm eyeing, but I don't really like to let the cat out of the bag unless it's uh, it's firm. Anytime I do that, it usually either doesn't materialize in the order it's supposed to, or I don't like announcing stuff that is not going to happen uh, and could fall through. So that's another little podcasting uh, bullet point. Don't promote crap. That isn't uh, a done deal because if you don't execute, you look really stupid. So if there's anybody listening that's looking for a podcasting tip, uh, don't promise shit you can't deliver. That's uh, an absolute uh, thing that Chadster likes to kind of live and die by as it relates to uh, podcasting and his podcasting uh, endeavors thus far. So kind of looking at what I wanted to do today. I've mentioned before that I've been watching a ton of, of new generation content on YouTube. Uh, there has been uh, a few uploaders that I found that for some reason get around the algorithm, uh, do not get blocked for copyright purposes by uh, WWE or by YouTube. Uh, hopefully they continue to do that because uh, I've found myself really uh, <laughs> on a roll as it relates to every year of the new generation uh, from 93 all the way to 
97 and even years prior we're talking stuff from 1989 1990 i've seen stuff from 1986 uh that's presented in uh, a really cool like best bits or best parts of the show or if it was like uh done in a storyboard style like you would kind of format uh a dvd compilation or a video compilation from back in the day like uh kind of meticulously picked from different shows from the new generation television cycle um, and just masterfully done because done in a way it's taken month by month and you get to see angles progress. You get to see stuff carried out. You get to see things go week to week and it's just highlights. It's not um, the full blown shows. It's, you know, the main uh, uh, segments and the main matches. It's not cut matches. It's not cut segments, but it's not every piece of, of uh, material from each show that's, clipped and then put onto these uh compilation videos uh but being able to put these things on for two to three hours sometimes that they are in duration i mean they can be an hour and 10 minutes or they could be uh three hours and five minutes depending on what's in the compilation it is refreshed a lot of memories for me it's given me a ton of content to discuss and to kind of dive through but it also really had me thinking about which year is the top year of this new generation era, right? We've got a few to choose from uh, for what we, we would call a down period. Um, it's really power packed with a lot of great stuff that I'm just thinking is overlooked because of when it happened, not necessarily because of the people or not necessarily because creative uh, wasn't there. It's really well done. Uh, in terms of execution with the angles and, and the, the cool little in and outs that you see, um, it's just that the fan base wasn't really watching at the time, but compared to now, you know, it's, uh, it, it would be three times the fan base that's watching wrestling live, uh, every single week. And we didn't watch it live. Everything was taped except for a few Monday night raws and the pay-per-views. Besides that, everything is a taped in advance, uh, television product. And it's, uh, it's really cool to see. So I, I kind of just want to run through, and this is obviously just my opinion, uh, and anybody who's listening to this and wants to give their two cents, I implore you to do so. And please reach out and tag me on social media and let me know what you're thinking. But what is the best year? You know, we've got really uh, uh, five good ones to choose from. But I, I have an idea uh, of what I really want to uh, accomplish with this. So I've taken the year of 1992, where some might consider the new generation to begin and the early part of 1997, where I'm going to say it ends as the uh, Raw is War set starts to uh, cycle its way in, the Red Ropes and the Titan Tron and all that stuff. Uh, so we'll go from about, you know, uh, November-ish 1992 uh, to the end of December 92. And we'll take uh, beginning of January till about uh, WrestleMania time in 1997 and kind of count that as one entry. Um, which I'm just going to slot at the end of the countdown because it's not a big enough sample size. But nonetheless, a lot of stuff happening in those two, you know, generational time frames because you have the big victory, the Bret Hart title win. It's actually October 1992 against Ric Flair in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan at the uh, Coliseum Video Primetime Wrestling Wrestling Challenge taping. Uh, Bret Hart defeats Ric Flair. It's obviously a huge moment in terms of Bret Hart's Hall of Fame career, but 
you know, it's in a time where it was very transition and, and it was, um, you know, not met with the greatest of reaction to some of the uh, tried and true fans. But you, you know, you got over it and you learned to love Brett. Brett was the greatest. And Brett really represents this era, I think, the most out of really anybody. This is, to me, it's the Bret Hart era. But you take that little sample from uh, October-ish, November to the end of December, and then you go flip ahead to uh, the early part of 97, where you get the epic Stone Cold Steve Austin Royal Rumble victory. You know, you get the big Bret Hart-Steve Austin match at WrestleMania 13. You get all the happenings of Sid and Brett and Vader and Austin and everybody in the final four and the trading of the belt and the, 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 the heart foundation reuniting and the Legion of doom debuting at a uh, redebuting at the Manhattan center Monday night raw where ECW um, had a big spot on the show. This is where I capped the new generation era, but it's kind of uh, like I said, it's a, it's a half entry or a quarter entry and we combine it with 92. So we're just going to slot them at the number five position together, just because they, uh, they really don't get a full uh, entry. Although some people might feel that beginning half of 97 is enough uh, in itself, but it's great, but it just doesn't get the whole, um, the whole, the, the whole head nod. And people might even want to debate me on that. If you even feel 97 should be in this countdown. I just think it is because you still get, the red, white, and blue ropes, the yellow uh, WWF logo, you still get that for the most part until they switch it over to Raw's War to compete with what Nitro had in terms of its presentation uh, at the time. But let's take it uh, year by year. Let's go to 1993, a huge year of transition where the new stars were starting to ascend. And like we talked about a few weeks back, the old guard still remain intact for the most part, but would be cycled in and cycled out. Uh, you think about big moments from 1993. You think about the launch of Monday Night Raw. You think of debuts like the One Two Three Kid. You saw wrestlers like the Steiner Brothers start to come in. You saw Razor Ramon uh, have a real prominent rise as a heel and then a, and a kind of shocking turn as a babyface. You saw the big um, uh, nuggets laid uh, in the, uh, the the <laughs> whatever you would say. I wouldn't maybe not nuggets laid. You see the uh, the, the you know, the, the breadcrumbs dropped for the Owen Hart uh, turn at Survivor Series in, in 1993, and that started to unfold. You saw the Quebecers and how they kind of came on really strong and had a really solid tag team uh, presence in the early part of uh, the new generation era. There's a lot of stuff that's great about 1993, and it's a year that I've really kind of put under a microscope in recent weeks and watching a ton of 1993 to see where it, it falls. And it, it's really not that bad uh, when you look at the whole presentation, but it's got its ups and downs. Now, if you want to look at when Hulk Hogan was there as maybe not a high point, you could absolutely do that because, you know, there are gaps where the WWF title is just absolutely a non-factor and Hulk Hogan and Jimmy Hart and Brutus Beefcake are just doing vignettes from the set of thunder in paradise or they're just in a weight room somewhere or they're just in front of a generic uh you know green screen or something like that it's not a, a factor on each show where you know if bret hart was the champion bret hart's coming out to do promos bret hart has a you know non-title match with somebody you see the belt physically on somebody during a wrestling show and with the hulkster 
it's out at a movie set or it's out in a production studio or it's in the gym and it's not necessarily becoming a factor. Now it's Hulk Hogan. So it doesn't need to be it's Hulk Hogan, but you just feel as the, the superstars were turning the corner, it's just kind of a step backwards. And as much as I do love the Hulkster, I don't love him in this era. I've said that many times before. Um, and yes, they did give Yokozuna a big win, but you really shudder to think if we were able to get that Bret Hart, um, Hulk Hogan match, even if for the optics, it would have been really cool. It really would have been something that solidified the early part of Bret Hart's uh, title uh, rise to uh, superstardom and uh, the legend he he would ultimately become in the grand scheme of uh, the WWE. But a lot of good stuff. A lot of good stuff. You see the uh, the Tatanka uh, winning streak. Moving forward, you know, you had great events like SummerSlam and the build with Lex Luger. Uh, you had uh, the Survivor Series was very strong at the Boston Garden. WrestleMania was a, a little bit in the middle. Not really the strongest one, not really the best, but still very good um, in terms of a, a match presentation. Maybe could have been better. You got the double doinks. You know, you have... Uh, the eh, maybe it's not as strong <laughs> as you think as you think it out and uh, really present it but still 93 i i do like it i like it a lot I, and the shows they introduced wwf mania it has that cool segment i mentioned last week with uh with john sensational sherry the macho man you get to see little easter eggs here and there but you still had the nasty boys hanging around you still had el matador hanging around and virgil and uh you know things that would be phased out uh, from guys that didn't belong. But then you see other, other members of that old guard. Like I talked about a few weeks ago, Hacksaw Jim Duggan had a great, great reinvention midway through 93, maybe a little bit too late. You know, to changed the gear up. He had an uh, intercontinental title feud with uh, Shawn Michaels, but little things that make 1993 very endearing, but it may be, maybe missing the top spot by just a hair. Uh, because right on its heels is 1994. And to me, 1994 has been one that has been a eye opener because uh, you see more of the uh, uh, polished presentation of this new era of superstar in 1994, because there are not a lot of callbacks to guys that you're familiar with. Even though you might see names like a Bob Backlund or you might see still the Macho Man is hanging around for a good amount of time, um, you just don't get beat over the head with the guys that you're used to seeing as a WWF viewer. A lot of focus now turns to guys that you haven't really gotten a chance to see on a, on a bigger scale. And, and guys, it's, it's weird too, that had been around like a IRS now begin to kind of still have that role and you see, even though he's not a tag team champion with uh, the Million Dollar Man, you still see an IRS as a heel that gets a good spot. And, and when a babyface battles IRS, if he beats him, it's, it now becomes a big win because you're beating a veteran. Highlights of 1994. Obviously, you got to start at the Royal Rumble, the double victory, Bret Hart and Lex Luger, the build to WrestleMania 10, the, the two championship matches um, between Yoko and Lex Luger, and Yokozuna and Bret Hart, the Bret Hart-Owen Hart feud and how it built in WrestleMania 10 and that epic victory by Owen to kick off the uh, the WrestleMania show, which could be still, like we've said on this uh, program before, maybe the greatest opener in the history of a wrestling show because it is so well done. 
1994, uh, really delivering. Uh, other things you have in 1994, you have um, kind of a, I wouldn't necessarily say uh, underdog uh, kind of theme because the previous year saw the one, two, three kid and his rise. But in 1994, you start to see guys that you necessarily wouldn't expect to have big time matches, get these big time matches. You get to see, you know, uh, the one, two, three kid and Marty Jannetty uh, become the tag team champions, albeit a very brief time. You get to see these different personalities uh, kind of getting pushed to the forefront. You get to see the rise of Diesel at the Royal Rumble absolutely dominates by the end of the year is obviously the world champion, but in between you got to see him capture the intercontinental gold, capture the tag team gold along with Shawn Michaels beating the head shrinkers. Um, just a, a really different way to uh, show a WWF champion. Here's this big guy. You don't expect him to be an IC champion. Well, guess what? He destroyed razor Ramon takes the belt. Boom. We're, uh, we're on our merry way. Uh, you also get to see, a lot. And here's a guy <laughs> that watching these, uh, these compilations and watching these, uh, these, these videos I've seen over the last couple of weeks. Uh, one guy who doesn't get the credit he deserves for, uh, <laughs> being an all around, uh, performer is <laughs> Ray Rougeau, who, uh, obviously the brother of, uh, Jacques Rougeau, the Mountie, uh, Jacques of the Quebecers is the basically lead in ring, uh, interview conductor and he is everywhere. He's on the platform. He's conducting mid ring interviews. He's doing them backstage and Ray Rougeau's kind of like in the middle of so many of the big uh, feuds going on at the time. Uh, to me, I just find it very striking to see like, you didn't think about it. Ray Rougeau is such a lightly spoken guy. He doesn't really jump off the page as a, uh, a WWF personality, uh, behind the mic, but he did such a great job uh, watching him in different interview segments. Uh, just soft-spoken, but gets the point across, you know, interviewing Diesel or interviewing Bret Hart or interviewing Shawn Michaels, uh, always playing the straight man to whomever he was with. Just a uh, a really cool guy who I thought <laughs> added a lot to, uh, to 1994. Also in 94, you got to see Raw kind of make its way out of that kind of New York bubble They'd be in Manhattan Center. They'd be in Poughkeepsie. They'd be in Westchester. They'd be in more uh, localized markets. They started to kind of venture out a little bit more. You'd see them kind of sneak into Pennsylvania or sneak into Ohio or sneak into other little areas around still, you know, familiar to the WWF territories, but nonetheless, uh, new territory for them. And you got to see some pretty cool presentations. Um of arenas and it's almost like you know when you get a video game and you see the different arenas that they load into the uh to the different eras uh one of the ones that i thought was really cool was um uh th there's a, a basically hard camera entrance with the small multicolored wwf logo that wasn't used very often but it was just always uh it was different to see and in 94 some of those shows where they added a little bit more color to the wrestling challenge banner and to the superstars banner the um, uh, that that multicolored sign in this entryway for for some of these tapings just very very cool uh, and something that I think stands out like we were saying with the uh, the multicolored set something that you wish as a kid maybe you could have had for those uh, <laughs> those Hasbro figures that were made um, at the time 
But also in 1994, you know, you got to see uh, some of the evolution of guys like The Undertaker. You know, you started to see uh, more of The Undertaker having those supernatural powers. Uh, the Royal Rumble comes to mind and his ascension, you know, to the heavens and then the rebirth at the end of the summer when he comes back against the, you know what, Undertaker. I'm not going to say it. Everybody knows I don't like it. Um, for the sake of you that don't. Under Faker, we will not say it again. It's not a good name. It's a stupid name. I don't know who came up with it, but I don't want to ever say it again on these airwaves. Don't quote me. Uh, but you saw more of the supernatural qualities of The Undertaker uh, emerging now in 1994 that, you know, kind of were there in the 92, 93 time. But now it was more the light shows and the uh, the changing of the entrance, the blackout, if you will. And uh, really would be something The Undertaker carried with him through the duration of his uh, WWE career. Also the change from the gray to the purple, which if you're an Undertaker fan, I'm sure the purple Undertaker is somebody that you uh, you really do cherish as a, uh, as a character. Uh, but 94, I absolutely love. Uh, also, how can you absolutely not mention the rise of Owen Hart? Uh, Owen Hart, the King of Hearts, the Summer of Owen. Uh, the the King of the Ring victory, the matches with Brett, the the great showing in the cage match at SummerSlam, the teaming and pairing with the Anvil, and then then facing Davy Boy and Brett in so many different matches and house shows and Raws and superstars and being just absolutely linked together uh, for such a long stretch of time, and then Owen's performance as the 1994 Survivor Series helping cost Brett the world title against Bob Backlund. Just something that, you know, has to be mentioned when you think of 1994. And if you were to really, I, I think, put it under a microscope, I think Owen Hart becomes the MVP of 1994 because it really was such an Owen-centric year. And, you know, I'm glad he didn't get the world title at this point because I did like the thought of the, uh, you know, the, the baby brother who had such envy for the big brother and not winning the belt or not winning the, the match when the belt was on the line was so cool and such a key move uh, that he got the victory right before Brett won the world title. And that 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 appearance in the entryway at Madison Square Garden at WrestleMania 10 and the look he has and the envy in his eyes is uh, oh just a, a screen cap in time. And then when he would do little things like he'd wear the Bret Hart glasses and he'd rip them apart. And, oh, just so well done. So, I mean, not only am I uh, absolutely digging 1994 and want to dive into more parts of 1994 in, in greater detail, I got to say that it's the year of Owen. And Owen Hart is no doubt the 1994 MVP of the WWF roster, uh, only to really be backed up by Brett because Brett is all over 1994. But, you know, Razor Ramon had a great 1994 uh you know, Diesel obviously had a great year. Maybe not his matches being that great, but still Diesel, you know, you watch some of the squash matches at Diesel, especially earlier in the year as he's ascending and more of an in-ring presence. I mean, he was just destroying guys. I mean, it wasn't even funny. I mean, it was just, it looked painful. And uh, it's really cool to see the progression of a guy like Diesel from 93 to 94. And then to get into 1995, which... You know, 95, I'm still kind of, uh, I'm working with it a little bit. I, I, I got to watch more back. I have more 95 stuff fresh in my brain from having viewed it in recent years 
and watching a lot of the uh, the Dean Douglas era shows with uh, the franchise and talking about things for the Triple Threat podcast. So 1995, I I just I need a little more. Um, I need to watch some more detailed footage to to give a good critique of the full year. What I'm seeing and what I remember is not very uh, very positive in terms of this countdown. And even though I'm slotting, you know, the the conglomerated two years into the slot of number five, I mean, I, I think it's not very hard to put 1995 at number four as, you know, not very impressive in the grand scheme of things. But look, still has its moments. There are a lot of cool things that do happen in 1995, but mm, it, it's really just a year that <laughs> has a lot of questionable things going on. You start to see some of the goofier characters popping up that just didn't really translate well. I mean, I was just watching the Monday night raw debut of avatar, the Al snow, the, the short lived Al snow character that um, was Al snow. And you saw Al snow walk to the ring. And then as he got into the ring would put on a Kabuki style mask only to uh, win the match and then take the mask back off and leave the ring. So just didn't get it. It was very strange. Uh, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, you know, kind of having to rewind and uh, go back and listen to what they were saying about his origin story. Um, he's a descendant of Jean Lafitte. The, uh, the, the, I don't think they exactly called him a pirate. I think in one of those traditional Vince fashions, they got around using the word pirate, uh, but they described the gold that he had around his neck in a pouch they described the eye patch. They described all the traits that a pirate would have, but I don't think that he was called a pirate per se. Um, and his debut is just, uh, you know, it's kind of clunky. And you know it's Pierre from the Quebecers, but they're not calling him that. And he's this pirate kind of person. And, you know, it's just these things that when the new generation gets <laughs> shit on, it gets shit on, I think, because of things that happened in 1995. Um, and obviously look, and the Dean, I personally love the Dean Douglas character. I know, uh, the Dean, AKA Shane, the franchise does not like the Dean Douglas character. I think it definitely had uh potential if it was given the free reign that it was originally supposed to have, where it would basically be Shane, who was a teacher being able to address the wrestlers as a teacher and treat it like a classroom. I mean, who doesn't hate a teacher? Uh, wonder what it could have looked like. I mean, not in his powder blue ring attire, but in the actual, like, you know, polo shirt and jeans and glasses. Like, he was the perfect professor. And I wonder, maybe he was the professor Shane Douglas or the professor Dean Douglas or something like that. Maybe it would have had a better uh, opportunity of getting a little bit more off the ground. But, you know, what hasn't been said about Dean Douglas that we didn't cover already on the air? It's uh, It's pretty cut and dry it just uh it died on the vine but again maybe this is why people shit on the entire new generation era is because of 1995 and that's that's plain and simple there's things you can go watch you know wrestlemania with uh lt and bam bam bigelow is interesting uh sid joining the corporation uh is interesting um you know the story arc of bam bam leaving the corporation is interesting it's got its high moments um, the Bam Bam face turn does not, uh, you know, the interesting vignettes of Goldust, the debut promos 
are very well done. I think they're very cool. I wish they had gone back to that a little bit more and had more of the movie quotes of um, uh, Goldust as a, as a feature thing. I know it will be phased out eventually. Uh, I do like the team of Yoko Zuna and Owen Hart a lot. I think that they had some pretty cool uh, chemistry. I think they had some very good matches. Love watching the squashes. You get to see Owen do some finesse, and then you get to see Yoko just absolutely demolish and squish some of the uh, the the ham and eggers that they would be facing on uh, Superstars or Monday Night Raw. Um, you know, you get to see Jeff Jarrett take on that Intercontinental title role and have some pretty damn good matches with uh, Aldo Montoya, PJ Walker, Justin Credible, uh, and Bob Holly. You know, Bob Holly had a, a two-week story arc with Jeff Jarrett where it uh, looked like Jeff won the match, but then they overturned it, and then it looked like Bob Holly won the match and was announced as the new Intercontinental Champion, but they overturned that, and the belt was given back to Jeff Jarrett. So, you know, there's some things that you could go back and watch and say, oh, okay, I like that. I, I'm cool with that. Oh, you got to give Diesel his due. The the turn of Diesel at the end of the match at Survivor Series where he becomes a tweener, he becomes a pre-attitude era character, Got to give credit to that. That's very good. Uh, you know, the weird Shawn Michaels concussion story stemming from the uh, the Syracuse incident. So it's got its high moments. It's got its low moments. 1995, I think, is the reason why people don't like the new generation era. So we'll just kind of cap it at that. I'm going to just slot it at number four. And, um, you know, I'm sorry, 1995, but you had to try a little bit harder. But I'm going to keep giving it more of an opportunity to grow on me as I go back and watch some of these uh, match compilations. Uh, how about this? Let's go to 1996. 1996 is a year that I personally did not like uh, looking back at all, have watched it and have thought, okay, maybe I was being a little hard because I wasn't a Shawn Michaels fan and was also captivated by the NWO. And that's maybe why I didn't give 1996 a fair shake. We get obviously the ringmaster. We get the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin. We get the King of the Ring in 1996. You get the Mankind Undertaker feud. You get the Shawn Michaels title uh, uh, run. You get two dudes with attitudes breaking up. You get good friends, better enemies, which is a great main event. There's aspects of 1996 I really like, but then there's a lot of it that I really don't like. And it's hard to, to go back and watch again because WCW was just starting to click on so many cylinders um, that it was hard to, to get behind the WWF in such a way because, you know, Bret Hart is gone for most of the entire summer. You'd see him pop on every here and there. He'd be on a, uh, a commercial. He'd be in a uh, promo. They'd show footage of an overseas trip and they'd say he was fulfilling contract negotiate uh, contract uh, commitments and it was negotiated that he'd fulfill these before he left um but you know on the positive side you get the brett steve austin match at survivor series 1996 you know you get some pretty stellar moments and some gems but you know outside of that i think everybody looks at it as a a failed uh, first title run of Shawn Michaels. If you were a fan at the time, you know what I'm talking about. You know, like I talked about with Kevin from the shining wizards uh, about a month ago, you know, growing up in the Northeast, Shawn Michaels was not a guy that they liked in, in Madison square garden. He was a guy that got vociferously booed anytime he'd come out. You know, they did not like him as a baby face. He was very corny. And as the NWO is doing some really cutting edge stuff, it was hard to say, Oh wow. I'm a, I'm a hardcore WWF fanatic. 
as uh, you know, you're watching this cutting edge stuff on uh, TNT and on Monday Nitro and on TBS, even on WCW Saturday night, some of the stuff they were doing was just so different, you know, and, and even though you get a cameo, like a Jake, the snake return, you'd get Mr. Perfect and the tease that he was coming back to, uh, to wrestle, you know, which I had talked about not too long ago either. Love that. Absolutely. Uh, off the charts. Cool. But nonetheless, didn't really go anywhere. And he was gone from the company right after it happened. So it kind of sucks. They even invested any time in it. So I don't love 1996. Uh, I like it more than I like 95, but I got to give 95 a little bit more, uh, a little bit more love and, and go back and view some other parts of the year that, um, you know, maybe I, I got to take a, a closer look at months in the summer that I don't really uh, have a great recollection of them. Maybe there was some cool stuff that I missed that I don't recall uh, as we speak. But yeah, 1996, I got to slot that at number three only because you know I don't love it. And again, it's, maybe it's it's based on the Shawn Michaels uh, push and title victory that I don't love it, but it gets the nod over 95. Now you're asking yourself, which year do I give the uh, number one spot to? Well, I think it's pretty clear. I got to go number one, uh, 1994, number two, 1993, number three, 1996, number four would be 1995. And then number five would be the split of the end of 1992, the early half of 1997, uh, getting that five and final spot. I mean, really, the way I've praised it, you should almost swa swap uh, number three and number five because of uh, the way it is, but they don't have a full sample, so we can't uh, do that by these weird rules that I've created in my head tonight as I've recorded this. But uh, I can only say it's been a pleasure going back to watch this stuff and report on it every week. And whoever I have on as a guest, it's so great to get their take and see what they think from uh, being a viewer and maybe going back to watch some of this stuff. Love it. It's the best part about watching wrestling now is, is taking in this nostalgia and regurgitating it back out to you here, the listener on uh, new generation declassified. So we'll wrap it up for today. I took up enough of your time, but I always appreciate your ears. So thank you for joining me. Uh, if you would like to follow your old buddy, the Chadster, you can follow me on Twitter at Chad EMB. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's at IB exclusives. This website is TMPT empire. My website is IB exclusives.com. Please come over and join us support anything and everything under the TMPT empire umbrella. John's shows, my shows, everybody's shows. It's all one big happy family. Uh, and we're so very happy and appreciative of all your uh, many years of uh, listening pleasure and uh, that's enough out of me uh, for this uh, oddball countdown, which I hope maybe people like and give me your feedback on. Tell me what you liked uh, year-wise as well. Uh, we'll catch you next week on New Generation Declassified, and I will catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.